Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Hear the word of our Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing back their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing nearer, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of our Lord. Join me in the prayer of confession and devotion printed in our worship folders. Lord Jesus, you are king of heaven and earth and king of my soul. I submit to you who owned me as creator and redeemed me both ransom and redeemer. In God's judgment at the cross, you traded your righteous robes for my sinful garments. You were cast off that I might be brought in, judged an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, wounded that I might be healed, made a shame that I might inherit glory. My heart is sworn to you. I have no other Savior. I have no other Lord. I want to love no other more than I love you. Yet there remains in my heart indifference to your word, and the love of the world is too much with me. Strengthen my feeble devotion. In your grace and patience, have mercy on my life and posterity. Under your reign, I rest my soul. Amen. If you confess these words and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, hear this word of pardon for your sins. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is able to condemn? For Christ Jesus has died. More than that, he is raised to life and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we come before you, hearing you call us, your people, to worship you, after we praise your holy name through singing hymns and spiritual songs and through prayer, after we hear the truth of the gospel through the reading of your word, and after renewing the covenant, 
knowing that you are our God and we are your people. Lord, remind us that everything we have, everything we are, is due to your mercy and grace. A beggar would be scorned if he were to boast of an expensive garment which someone had loaded him for a single day. We also should be scorned if we declare that all that we have received, the graces, gifts, beauty, strength, and riches, were because of something that we have done and not because you first loved us. Lord, we express our thankfulness through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, and through obeying and believing what your word demands of us. Bless us, Lord. Create in us a desire to be drawn in by your Spirit and bring forth the kingdom of God. Amen. I first preached in this passage on Palm Sunday, first preached here in this passage on Palm Sunday of 2013, five years ago. I'm sure you remember in detail that message. Uh, we have had, uh, I've been in this passage with you, this same passage, uh, on three other occasions. So this is a passage as a church that we're, we've been in almost every year. But there, you cannot measure the depth of this passage. It's one of my favorite in all of Scripture. And I couldn't always say that. Uh, I used to look at this when I was much younger and say, what was that about? Why? Uh, what happened that day? Uh, we could talk about it, and we'll talk about it in eternity, uh, forever. Uh, and we'll still not get, understand it all. We'll still not get to the depth of it. There are so many paradoxes as you look in detail of this parade. That's why this morning I've chosen to call it a, a paradoxical that's our subject this morning. Before we do, uh, before we look at this, let's pray and ask Jesus who is there. And ask his father to teach us something of what was happening. Let's pray together. Our father, we bow, we run to your throne. The throne from which your grace, your care flows even to the depth of giving your own son for us. Our Father, we love to come to you because and pray because you've told us to come as your priests. We're the priests of Christ's Presbyterian Church, all of us together. Each one of us a priest in our own place, in our own time, with our own families, in our own neighborhoods. And then, Father, on that Lord's Day morning, on this Lord's Day morning, as we come together, we pray as a congregation of priests, thank you for the way that you've answered our prayers. Thank you for the way that you've heard our cries. Thank you for the way that you've 
wiped away our tears. That you have brought your omnipotent comfort to bear in our lives. Father, thank you for the healing spiritually and physically that you've brought to this congregation, that you've brought to our families, our relationships with our children, that you've brought to our marriages. So we bow before you in thanksgiving and we come again as your priest to pray, to pray for Priscilla Turner. Father, give her strength for these days. We pray that you would bring healing to her body. Father, it's incredible how you have provided for her in all the years that she has battled this disease. Thank you for what you have done and are doing in the life of Janet Sartell. Thank you for the treatments that she's able to take. Thank you for the effect these have had. And we pray that you would bring healing to her body. Father, there's no disease that you cannot heal. Our Father, teach us to pray for each other. Teach us to pray in faith. Teach us to bow before you and to always say, Our Father, your will be done. For your will, Father, has always done good to us. We thank you. Now as we open your word, we come understanding that John Sartell cannot preach or teach so that it will make any difference in our lives. We're not dependent on him this morning. Our Father, we're dependent on you. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to receive. When we leave here in a few minutes, may we know that you have spoken in Jesus' name and for his glory, his glory alone. Amen. First, as you look at Luke 19, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, I want you to see the prologue to this story. 500 years before Jesus was born, an obscure prophet named Zechariah had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. 70 years before Zechariah returned from Babylon, Israel had suffered a devastating defeat when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had invaded Israel. Jerusalem had been laid waste. The land was left desolate. Much of the population had been taken to Babylon under the judgment of God. But seven decades later, 70 years later, as God had promised the captives returned from Babylon to Judea, to Jerusalem, under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra. You know them. What you probably didn't know was that Zechariah, the prophet, was a part of that group of Jews returning to rebuild Jerusalem. You can spend the afternoon reading the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. You've probably never spent an afternoon reading Zechariah in the Old Testament. 
but you'll readily see that he spoke prophetically. He spoke about the future. He spoke about the Messiah who was coming. One of the most well-known passages in Zechariah was about the Messiah being a king who would come. And he wrote in Zechariah 9, 9, these words. You can see it on your scripture sheet. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foe of a donkey. Daughter of Jerusalem, there's a king coming. And you'll know him. He will ride into the city on a coat. He'll ride on the foe of a donkey. Now, that is the prologue to the story in Luke 19. A prologue is the story before the story. In our modern terminology, we call it the prequel. Well, you've just looked at the prologue. You've just looked at the prequel. Secondly, I want you to see in this passage, 500 years later, Jesus purposely, by plan, lays claim to fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. Let's read it again. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one is ever yet set untied and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was nearing, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Jesus had made the trip from Galilee to Jerusalem many times. Never had he entered the city in this fashion. Why now did he choose? And notice he orchestrated this. Every detail was orchestrated and planned by Jesus. Why now did he choose to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy and lay claim to being the Messiah? Why not on his first trip or second trip or fifth trip that he had made to Jerusalem? For almost three years, he had publicly claimed that he was Messiah. We've seen it over and over again in our study in Luke. Every miracle was a claim to his deity. He did not heal by prayer. He healed by fiat, by command. He spoke with the voice of God. He demonstrated complete control over nature. He even raised the dead. His words, his teaching, backed up his actions. He forgave sins. He claimed to be eternal. 
He said he was there in Abraham's day. He knew him. He said he had come from glory, from heaven. But now he was coming to Jerusalem for the last time. He was at the height of his earthly fame. You understand on this day, no man in Israel, not Pilate, not the governor, not Aaron, no one was more known than Jesus of Nazareth. He was at the height of his earthly fame. He had been traveling toward Jerusalem for some months, town by town. Everyone knew the prophet from Nazareth was coming to Jerusalem. The one who claimed to be the one and only Messiah was coming. Do you begin to see it? Do you get it? Now, now he would fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. Now he would ride in Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Now he would enter the royal city of Jerusalem, the ancient city of Israel's kings. Now he would make a regal announcement. It was time. The Messiah had come to his city. He had come previously, but not with this fame. And this time, he had come to fulfill his mission. There was a group called the Jesus Seminar that started in the 1980s. It was started by a group of liberal scholars, liberal theologians, who wanted to preserve the moral and ethical teaching of Jesus but do away with his claims to deity. Do away with his claims to messiahship. The Jesus Seminar continued as a group until about 2006. They taught that the disciples in the early church made up Jesus' claims to deity. They really didn't come from Jesus. You look at this passage. Quite clearly, it's not his disciples. Jesus orchestrates his entrance into Jerusalem. Now, when the Jesus Seminar looked at this, they know that if Jesus made these claims, that he was either insane man who claims to be God, or he was a charlatan trying to bilk the people, or that he was being truthful. Those were the choices they had. If he was insane, or if he was a charlatan, the moral and ethical teachings would lose their validity, and they didn't want that. They wanted to hold on to Jesus' ethical and moral teachings. They wanted him to be this great teacher. But have you ever heard of a great teacher that claimed to be God? In the Gospels, folks, deal with it. 
in this modern day and time where modern people deal with it. You can't change the truth. You can't change what you see on every page of the gospel that Jesus claimed deity and he claimed to be the Messiah. The Jesus Seminar, after it was all said and done, did away, now get this, did away with 85% of the sayings of Jesus. They said 85% of the sayings of Jesus did not come from him. They were admitting, if you look at that, what does it tell you? It tells you that all through the Gospels, the great percentage of what Jesus said was about his deity and about his being the Messiah. The prologue, 500 years later, Jesus purposely lays claim to fulfilling Zechariah's property. You can't debate that. It's obvious. Thirdly, I want you to, no- I want you to see the unnoticed, extraordinary part of the story. What about this donkey, this coat? We read there that in verse 30, which no one has ever ridden. This coat had not been ridden. It was unused. Why? The details of the gospel are just incredible. Just incredible. We'll not do There's details we won't understand or see until we get home. Well, we can see this one. Why an unused coat? When in the Old Testament, when something was being set aside for holy use, it had to be unused for anything else. It couldn't have had any prior use. If it was being set aside for holy use, It couldn't have been used before that time for anything else. The womb of Mary was unused before it nurtured Jesus. The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was unused. Jesus said, you'll find the colt, the donkey. He's unused. No one's ever sat on this donkey before. There's something else about this coat which no one has ever ridden. They brought it to Jesus and Jesus got on the coat. Now I grew up in farm country in Fayette County. We're not in Shelby County in the city. People in the city don't understand this. Go go to the farms in Fayette County and ask them to give you a coat that's never been ridden. What do you want it for? Well, I want to get on it and ride it. Just a minute. We'll go get that for you. If you'll just let us watch. You don't climb on coats that have never been ridden. And yet Jesus did. I've had coats when I was young and was riding a lot in Draper's Valley, Virginia. 
had Colts try to buck me or throw me or scrape me off against a fence post or a fence, bite me. And here's Jesus. Every time I think about this, I just laugh. Jesus got on the coat and rode away. He used the coat for his purpose. You know, that's what Christ has done and is, is doing in all of our lives. He takes our rebellious, untamed, wild hearts and he causes us to submit to his will and his authority. We ought to smile as we read this because we are the donkey. It's, it doesn't just happen once in our lives when we come to Jesus. It's a continual action in our lives. Every day, he must break my will, must tame my tongue, must put blinders on my eyes. All of us who know him are still being tamed by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. The prologue, 500 years later, Jesus purposely lays claim to fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. The unnoticed Extraordinary part of this story in the donkey. Fourthly, I want you to see the praise of the crowd. The praise of the crowd who were understanding and not understanding at the same time. Verse 37, as he drew near, already on his way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been done saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Most of these folks sincerely believed Jesus was Messiah. They really did. But they had a, they had a complete misunderstanding of what he had come to do. Yes, he was Messiah. They were saying that. Coming to a cross, that was beyond their comprehension. A crucified Messiah was outside their frame of reference. Notice that Jesus did not stop the parade. He didn't say, stop it. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know the whole story. You know, he just accepted their praise. At Christ's prayers, we love to study scripture and continue to find historical, classical, Christian theology. That's a good thing that we do. However, notice that Jesus did not say to this crowd that only understood part of the story. They certainly didn't understand the cross. They certainly didn't understand that he had come to die for their sins. He didn't stop the parade and say, you have no idea what you're doing. Let's stop this. Let me tell you why I've come to Jerusalem. Jesus simply accepted their praise. When I, when I looked at this years ago and understood it, I want to say, Jesus, they don't get it. These people didn't understand the incredible sacrifice that you were about to make. When I thought about it, Christ said, John, 
They're praising me based on what they do know. How much greater your praise should be because you know so much more. Then when I really thought about it, he would say to me, John, do you really think you understand it all? People, he loves our praise. And we praise him. And we thank him for what we do know. What he's shown us. The prologue, 500 years later, Jesus purposely lays claim to fulfilling Zachariah's prophecy. The unnoticed, extraordinary part of this story, this this. Jesus riding this unused donkey. The praise of the crowd that was both understanding and not understanding at the same time. Fifthly, I want you to see that Jesus allowed their praise and partying just days before his crucifixion. We've looked at it as he drew near Jerusalem. They're praising him. This is a this is a, a party in motion. It's a parade. This is a celebration. They're singing. They're dancing. Do you ever look at this and say, don't they know there's going to be a cross? Doesn't Jesus know that he's going to a cross? That he's going to into a great time of, of darkness and evil? This is no time for a party. It would be a time for mourning. They ought to be singing a dirge. That Friday evening in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, just a few days later, as they came to get Jesus, he said to the people that came to get him, this is your hour when darkness reigns. That's what he was approaching. It seems like a paradoxical parade. Before the end of the week, Jesus would descend into hell. But Jesus loved that day. He loved their joy. The Messiah had come to Jerusalem. The king had come. The the announcement was official now. It was a time to dance. It was a time to sing. There's a great message in, in this for us. In this fallen world, too many times when darkness reigns, there's too many times that darkness reigns. And we know that. But we're still called. We're still called on the good days. We're still called to times. There's a time for joy. There's a time to dance. There's a time to sing. Even in this fallen world, Christians are apt to say, we live in a fallen world. Babies are being killed in their mother's wombs. Neighbors are dying and going to hell. This is not the time to laugh. You can't have laughter. You can't have parties in the church, in the kingdom. They should have told Jesus to stop the party that day. Jesus, I'm on the inside track. I know what's going to happen on Friday. How can we be dancing and singing? Jesus would have said, I'll let you mourn by yourself. I'll sing in my dance with my people.
I'm going to be crucified. Yes, I'll be crucified on Friday, but my tomb will be empty on Sunday. And this is an early celebration. One of my dear, dear close friends was dying of cancer several years ago. His daughter was being married in two weeks, but it was obvious that he would never make it to the wedding. He would not be able to give his daughter away. He would be home in glory. This family was extremely close. And so we gathered in this man's bedroom. He looked like he had been in a concentration camp. His hair had fallen out. He was yellow. But there, we had a wedding. And he gave his daughter away. And even then, we laughed. We didn't cry. We laughed. And we drank wine. And we celebrated. In less than 24 hours, in less than 48 hours. He had gone home to be with the Lord. Let me tell you the rest of the story. Two weeks later, family gathered, rehearsal dinner, and all that goes with it. A large wedding, a great reception. It was a time of joy. It was a time of laughter. That family, you know, they weren't stoic. They weren't stoics. They were Christians. They were being godly. They were not being frivolous. They were being holy. Even in a fallen world, we parted because of the gospel. When we get home, when we get home, listen to me, Christ Presbyterian. It will not be that we looked back and say we parted too much. We will be forced to say we didn't part enough. Where was the party? The prologue, 500 years later, Jesus purposely lays claim to fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. The unnoticed extraordinary part of the story, the praise of the crowd that was both understanding and not understanding. Jesus allowed their praise and party in just days before his crucifixion. Finally, sixthly, we see a prophecy that will be shortly fulfilled. And some of the Pharisees and the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I'll tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, some of the Jesus seminar folks were there. We think we're modern. We think of this unbelief and everything. Right. Uh, the moderns were there too. The Jesus seminar was there. They, Jesus, you can't let them call you deity. You can't let them call you God. You can't let them call you Messiah. Tell them to be quiet. Jesus said, you don't understand. If I tell them to be quiet, these very stones are going to cry out. That wasn't an, that wasn't an hyperbole. It wasn't an hyperbole. We won't look at that and say, Jesus, of course that's our No. Listen to Matthew 27, 50 and 51. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtains of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
the earth shook and what? And the stones split that day. The stones did cry out. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in. Christ the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. When the disciples were forced into silence, creation spoke and spoke loudly. During the French Revolution, one of the diabolical leaders who was burning a village said to an evangelical Frenchman, in that village. We are tearing down your village church. And we'll burn your Bibles. And there will no longer be any word of Jesus. Then what will you do? The Frenchman evangelical was undaunted. He looked at his persecutor. And he said. And who will tear down the sun? And who will snuff out the stars? The heavens declare the glory of God. And the earth shows forth his handiwork. Jesus shut them up, or we will. And Jesus laughed. Oh, you don't understand. If you shut them up, my creation will shout of my glory. A prophecy. It's still going on. During that week, later that week, Jesus would take some ordinary wine and ordinary bread. And he would say, this bread is my body broken for you. This wine is my blood shed for you. We can't look at the bread without seeing the body of Christ broken, without seeing the cross. We can't look at the wine without seeing the blood of Christ. You know, on Thursday evening, there'll not be an earthquake here. Stones probably won't cry out. But the bread and wine will speak. Amen. Our hymn is most appropriate in Christ alone. Please stand as we sing. Still when 
Ocean's driving seas My comforter My all in all Here in the love of Christ I stand In Christ alone To of God in helpless pain, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, the light of the world thy darkness slain, in bursting forth in glorious day. From the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost his grip on me, I feel, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said,